National Archives podcast series, Anxiety, Dread and Disease, English Ports, 1834 to 1870, presented by Sarah Hutton. Hello, everybody. So this is a quotation um, from one of the members of the New York Academy of Medicine upon boarding the Salon, which had just come into port. Many of the passengers had died on the voyage. We passed through the steerage, but the indescribable filth, the emaciated half-nude figures crouching in the gangways, broken utensils and debris of food spread recklessly about, presented a picture of which neither pen nor pencil can convey a full idea. Some were just rising from their berths for the first time since leaving Liverpool, having been suffered to lie there during the entire voyage, wallowing in their own filth. You will be forgiven for assuming, like the men who walked onto the salon, that the image you are being presented with is that of a slave ship. But that is not the case. In fact, this ship arrived into an American port in 1847, was carrying a cargo of paying passengers, intending to start a new life across the Atlantic as immigrants, and had come directly from Liverpool. And it is where these passengers have come from, which I really want to focus on this afternoon, the English port town. The English port town presents us with a quite unique locality, a locality unlike any other in the 19th century, due to its constantly shifting demographic makeup. Unlike its inland neighbours, the port town can be seen as having a community on land, but also a community at sea, which moves in and out of the port in order to survive. And it is the interplay of what we call these outside and inside communities of port towns which I want to explore. At the time of growing concern over the sanitation and the spread of disease in urban environments, to what extent did these inside land-based communities live in harmony with these outside communities at sea, and to what extent were they disrupted and destabilised? In a recent study, Krista Madlin has pointed out that although much scholarship has been devoted to maritime history and to the history of public health, there's been very little written about the important link between these two subjects in Victorian Britain. And that's something I want to draw out this afternoon. We know quite a lot about the impact and spread of disease once it had taken hold within the country, but there is relatively little consideration, currently anyway, of the policies and practices which operated to intercept the importation of infectious diseases at port. To explore this further today, I'm going to focus on two ports, Liverpool and Tynemouth. Both are in the north of England, one on the west coast and one on the east. Both were growing urban ports. Both saw large increases in population and both saw an increase in commercial activity. One in the transport of goods and the other, as we saw before in the case of the Salon, in the transport of passengers. However, the strategies employed by the Liverpool and Tynemouth authorities with regard to health and sanitation differed significantly. Through a process of comparison, using two case studies, I want to start to set out a narrative of both of these ports in regard to contagious disease, attempt to draw out the differences between them, and try to provide some kind of interpretation of the rationale behind them. To do these, there are a considerable number of sources I could use here at the National Archives. 
things like PC1 and the Ministry of Health documents in MH98 and MH19. But what I'm going to focus on today are two of the largest document collections we hold here from the Ministry of Health. MH12, the Poor Law Union Correspondence, and MH13, the General Board of Health Correspondence. Both of these collections of documents were created as records of administration of two specific legislative frameworks, the New Poor Law of 1834 and the Public Health Act of 1848. Both of these frameworks operated in a very similar way, in that they generated reams of correspondence from local administrative units into central government, capturing thousand upon thousand of stories and snapshots of life on the ground across England and Wales. And for our purposes today, most helpfully, these, of course, include life in port towns. So if we want to talk about the idea um, of inside and outside communities within these towns, then it's worth having a bit of a closer look at what this might actually mean. And I think the first point this takes us to is that clearly defining these communities can itself be problematic because the community of a port town, the inside community, is, is shifting and fluid. Just like so many urban areas of Britain in the 19th century, one of the characteristics of the port town was migration. Industry, mechanisation and methods of working were changing dramatically. And as those changes took place, so did the ways that people lived. For many, more rural traditional ways of life were becoming a thing of the past, and more and more people were pulled into the smoke-filled new cities of mills and factories to seek employment. As the island rose to become that of the leading industrial power of the world, so it too became the dominant player in international trade, leading to a similar flow of people seeking employment, coming into its port towns, following the movement and distribution of goods. <coughs> Whereas in the past, populations had seen a steady growth, in these industrial areas, populations suddenly exploded. If we look here at the figures for Liverpool, for example, the population of 1801 was approximately 80,000. But just 40 years later, this had risen more than threefold to a staggering 286,500. It soon became clear in busy towns that population increase was soaring ahead of the area's abilities to provide proper sanitation housing and water supplies. Pockets of intensely overcrowded streets began to appear where conditions were squalid and slum-like. Landlords packed multiple families into tiny, dirty houses and the provision for waste, if it even existed, was so poor as to be beyond use. In 1889, L.C. Parks, writing on public health and hygiene, wrote that the lack of facilities in overcrowded houses led to the poor getting into the habit of depositing their excreta in a newspaper, folding it up and throwing it with its contents out of a back window. Challoner writes in the Social and Economic Development of Crewe one year later that the sanitary authority for the villages in Pembrokeshire did not offer any free cleansing services, and so the deep cesspools there were overflowing. The villagers were living, he suggests, quite literally on top of semi-liquid pools of excrement. And the situation was not only the same in British port towns, but it was compounded by the fact that those residing there for very short periods of time 
on their way through to other destinations, needed cheap accommodation, such as lodging houses. In Edwin Chadwick's 1842 report into the sanitary conditions of the labouring classes, Mr Gilbert Ward, the medical officer of the Tymouth Union, describes one of the many unregulated lodging houses which have sprung up there as a low, damp, dirty, ill-ventilated, miserable hovel kept by the most filthy people I ever beheld, containing four beds seldom changed and which I have witnessed filled with beggars of the lowest description. And in correspondence just a few years later, between Tymouth and the General Board of Health in MH13, we hear further of the misery and evil inflicted upon the poor owing to the want of proper regulations in the area of public health. The medical officer reports that on visiting Cobble Lane, Bell Street, several <coughs> poor women came out to complain of the disgusting nuisance to which they were subject. He goes on to explain that leading from this court is a very high flight of stone steps and at the top of them is placed a slaughterhouse. The people inform me that the blood runs down the steps immediately before their doors. In hot weather this causes a horrible smell and in the summer thousands of maggots are washed down. Across the country's towns, as populations rocketed, the lack of sanitation, poor waste disposal and cramped living conditions dominated the urban living experience for the poor. Stages were created upon which infectious disease had the perfect opportunity not only to take hold but to spread rapidly through the cramped rookeries, cellars and lodging houses. But for these predominantly poor inside communities of the port town, not only had an environment been created which was ripe for the spread of disease, but as ships arrived daily, carrying goods and people, so it too became the gateway for the introduction of these diseases. Just like the mouth, ears and nose of the human body, so ports became the openings of the country through which the foreign bodies of disease could enter creating unique and vulnerable spaces, both in their own right and for the rest of the country. And one of the key diseases that demonstrates this is cholera. Cholera was foreign and frightening. Although it never caused the level of death seen by homegrown diseases, this did nothing to alter the perception of the population that this was something to be utterly dreaded. From the first outbreak in the port town of Sunderland in 1831, <coughs> cholera became the shock disease of the 19th century, infiltrating the imagination with a nightmarish grip. Part of this was fuelled by the foreign nature of the disease in itself, both in its origins and transformative effects on the body of the victim. Contemporary accounts pointed to the appearance as being quite alien with monstrous stomach and abdominal pain, and the skin changing to a wizened bluish grey. The way in which the appearance of the victim was represented seemed to mirror the way in which cholera itself was represented by the British press, as if the foreign nature of Asiatic cholera was transmittable. In addition to this, cholera moved at incredible speed, and this elicited panic. Those who were healthy in the morning could be dead from the disease in the evening. Horror stories circulated at the imperceptible pulse and lifeless appearance of its victims, leading to premature burial. 
fueling grotesque tales of the ill trying to scratch their way out of the coffins they'd been recently buried in. Terror was only exacerbated by the utter confusion as to how it spread. Contemporary accounts employed language which frequently bestows an evil, quite deliberate consciousness upon the disease. As in this letter from 1832 to the Liverpool Mercury from a man living on the street where three of his neighbours died in quick succession. If the cholera be contagious, that is personally, why does it not spread from house to house and from street to street? Is this the case with the cholera? Let observation speak. The monster enters a house here and then another at a considerable distance, leaving the intermediate ones free. Carries off an individual here, another there, a third in a third place, and two or three in a fourth place, where no communication can be traced. It is the same with a country. It first attacks one town, and then another many miles distant, leaving others between those, between those places uncontaminated. The monster rides in the air, alights on its victims at demonical will, and defies all human restrictions, whether civil, military, or naval. The 1832 Quarterly Review equates cholera's progress to that of an alderman for easy travelling or a courier for rapid movement. It is written that it selects the best roads for its dreadful invasion, and like man, it travels along the high roads from town to town gradually and attacks the most populous and commercial first. The overwhelming need to understand and thus to try to halt the spread of the disease generated quite incredible theories of transmission, which in their wake left a trail of quack cures. Here is one distributed by Mr. Jacques Lanai in 1848. It's posing as a government-issued instruction leaflet advising the public on how to best avoid becoming infected by cholera. Some instructions fall into the bracket of advice we can now see as beneficial. For example, number four, let all uncovered drains be carefully and frequently cleansed. And number 22, let the dead be buried in places remote from the habitation of the living. Others will quite clearly have made no difference whatsoever, like number 17, let every cause tending to depress the moral and physical energies be carefully avoided. And number 15, let a flannel or woolen belt be worn round the belly. Number 15, in fact, was quite an established and accepted form of prophylactic against cholera, as you can see in an example of a design sent into the Board of Trade for registering in 1848. And in this quagmire of rumour and panic, port towns as particular sites of confusion and vulnerability in the 19th century are clearly expressed in the ways the authorities and individual communities react to the disease. Let's turn back now to Tynemouth. To best understand the anxiety and confusion experienced by both the population and authorities to the threat of cholera, it's worth skipping ahead a few decades from the second outbreak of cholera in the late 1840s, 1850s, where we're going to be focused, to the latter part of the century. In Tynemouth, by the end of the century, correspondence clearly demonstrates that there is a robust response system to the threat of cholera approaching from the sea. Port sanitary authorities have been established and there is a clear mechanism in place for limiting the potential threat of the infection. On the 5th of September 1892, for example, the Medical Officer of Health 
wrote to the River Tyne Port Sanitary Authority declaring that, in accordance with my duty, I have this morning telegraphed to you to the effect that the screw steamer Elbie from Hamburg arrived in the Tyne last night, having on board a case of cholera, John Hendy, chief mate of the ship. The ship was taken to the quarantine boys, and the patient, who was in a state of collapse, was removed to the floating hospital without delay. He died this morning about six o'clock. I considered the case to be one of Asiatic cholera. The medical officer then goes on to explain that the man's belongings were then burnt and his berth disinfected, and the body of John Hendy was interred in an appropriate way. By this period, cholera is well established in terms of being recognisable and thanks to the work of men like John Snow in terms of reducing transmission. The policies and practices in place are clear and they are followed through. However, in the earlier part of the century, where we are focused, these policies and practices surrounding disease were not as clear-cut. The case I want us to look at today, involving a sailor named Phipps, took place in 1854. By this time, quarantine, although it raised considerable debate because of its tendency to isolate the healthy with the sick and to interrupt maritime trade, was in place in order to protect land-based communities from ships known to be carrying infection or to have arrived from infected areas. The passing of the Quarantine Act in 1825 meant that all vessels travelling from locations where the plague or other infectious disease or distemper, highly dangerous to the health of His Majesty's subjects, was known to exist, had to be held offshore, either on board or in a quarantine station for a fixed period of time. Initially, this was quite a big problem. Asiatic cholera wasn't seen on British shores before the initial out outbreak in the 1830s, so even with quarantine in place, a disease needed to be recognised in order to be caught by this legislative net, and so the Act did little to prevent the deaths of 31,000 people at the beginning of the 1830s. But by the second outbreak of 1849 and the early 1850s, clear quarantine should have been in place. The symptoms of cholera are now recognisable, although it was still not entirely understood how transmission could take place, it was clear on some level that an infected person led to further cases of the disease. In time, Murph, it's possible to see this new significance of the separation of the infected from the uninfected becoming of importance to the authorities there. Proof of this occurs in a letter written to both the General Board of Health and the Poor Law Board at the end of the 1840s, when the second outbreak was underway. We discovered that in North Shields, a part of the time of Union, there was a shed that had been fitted up by the Guardians of the Poor as a temporary hospital or place of refuge to receive any of the inhabitants attacked with cholera from overcrowded rooms if, as the letter explains, it is found necessary to separate them from their families or other occupants and thereby prevent the spread of the epidemic. The establishment of a quarantine hospital in the town was unsurprising. The country had been hard hit by this second wave of cholera. Liverpool had been one of the hardest hit areas. 1,523 deaths had occurred in the 1832 epidemic, but a staggering 5,308 had taken place in 1849. Yet, although Tymouth had not suffered to the same extent, it had certainly not been untouched. Indeed, in the 1849 wave, 
the Medical Officer of Health reports that the registration districts of Earston, North Shields, Blythe and Tynemouth suffered cholera deaths at a rate of 1 in 41, 1 in 45, 1 in 65 and 1 in 123. And in the smaller districts of these townships, the pestilence prevailed fully, it's quoted, and 42 persons died out of 200 when the rest fled. Yet surprisingly, although we know that deaths took place in Tynemouth, the General Board of Health correspondence for that district only includes one reference to the use of the quarantine temporary hospital. An interesting point when you go on and look at the other urban districts in MH13, which are dominated by correspondence relating to cholera. In fact, there are whole great big volumes dedicated solely to this theme. And this in itself draws attention, I think, even more to this single letter, the case of the sailor Phipps, and the one recorded use of the Tynemouth Quarantine Hospital. In 1854, we hear from the clerk to the guardians of the Union that just down the coast from Tynemouth, the sailor Phipps was lying on a vessel at Jarrow Quay on the River Tyne, a part of the river which the authorities of Tynemouth describe as forming part of the South Shields Union. That's the union that's just down the road from Tynemouth. And at three o'clock on the previous Saturday, he was removed from the vessel by the medical officer at South Shields by boat and taken two miles along to Tynemouth. He was then, the clerk reports, carried by four men without bed or covering through some of the densely populated streets to the terror of the inhabitants. A situation which our single letter in MH13 points to as an event which caused great alarm to the inhabitants. In fact, the writer Thomas Litch declares that this board are at a loss to know how Mr Saunders can justify the act of exporting men afflicted with a dangerous and contagious epidemic from any place into another densely populated place to the terror and danger of the inhabitants. By this act, it appears to this board that the possible evil results of conveying contagious disease into healthy communities have been governed entirely by the convenience of Mr Saunders, the medical officer of South Shields. Litch goes on to say, A feeling has thus been created that the hospital, instead of being a source of protection to this borough and union, affords a direct premium to the importation of disease, a feeling which would not exist if other places on the banks of the river were directed to provide proper accommodation for their own imported cases. What makes this outcry so interesting is that Timer, as the medical officer of health of the town has pointed out, already has cases of cholera, and we assume that this must mean that the hospital has thus already been used for its purpose. But if this is the case, then surely that must mean that cases of cholera have had to be moved through the union to access the hospital. Yet nowhere do we find evidence of this. What seems to underpin this account is not just the cholera itself, but the anxiety caused by the understood importation. Not only importation from another union, but importation from the sea. The cholera infection already resides within Tynemouth, as I've demonstrated the numbers of cases described. Yet it is only at this moment, when the threat is perceived as arriving from the outside, that we seem to find a reaction. The medical officer is found to be at fault, to deliberately have contaminated the Tynemouth Union. 
And although the union has dealt in virtual silence with its own cases of cholera, it's made clear that a case on the outside is not acceptable and requires recourse to central government. The sale of Phipps, like the sea-based community he is part of around Tynemouth, is a carrier of goods, and in this role forms a part of the industrial success of the port. But he is also a carrier of infection, a status which elicits fear from the land-based community of the port and anger from its authorities. Yet, if the role of goods carrier is acceptable, what happens when the goods themselves become the vehicles of transmission? In a port which to a large extent trades in the human cargo of passengers, like Liverpool. Alongside the significant demand for American timber and cotton as raw materials for British industry, creating well-established transatlantic links in one direction, the passage back became immensely useful and lucrative for the transportation of emigrants. Thousands of emigrants left from Liverpool, and the port also became a critical hub for emigrants coming from mainland Europe on the way to the USA, Canada and Australia, as well as a huge influx of Irish emigrants crossing to Liverpool by steamship on their way to America to escape the potato famine. From 1830 to 1930, it is estimated on the Liverpool Maritime Museum website that over 9 million emigrants sailed from Liverpool. Yet even with this extraordinary amount of traffic going in and out of the port, as late as 1853, notably exactly the same time that Tynemouth was wrestling with the case of Phipps, a letter from the town clerk of the Town Hall of Liverpool reports that a full system of quarantine is still not in place. The system which is in place, in fact, rather than separating and protecting the community of the port against disease coming in, seems to positively disrupt it. He writes that a boat called Silas Greenman docked at Liverpool, waiting to make the journey to New York, has had several deaths on board due to cholera amongst a group of German emigrants. And in order to accommodate the cholera patients on the Silas Greenman, the town clerk states that much valuable time has been lost by the removal of the sick from the parish hospitals on shore, whilst much difficulty has also been experienced in procuring adequate accommodation for the healthy, whose removal from the ship became imperative in order that she might be cleansed and fumigated. In this instance, German travellers have come through Liverpool in transit on their way to America, carrying cholera, and the effect of this on the local port community is that not only have the permanent resident sick of the town had to be moved in order to create a safe environment for those on board the ship, but passengers who may be carrying the disease have now been housed among the healthy population already living there. The disruption caused by this course of action seems quite incredible, and the clerk's subsequent request to the General Board of Health that in port towns, the guardians of the poor should provide a hospital ship with the proper medical staff on board for the prompt treatment of cholera cases occurring on board a ship, seems to be an attempt to both close the gate once the horse is bolted, and seems a surprising demand for a town which must be exposed to such a problem frequently to have to make. Indeed, the ongoing problem is expanded upon by the Medical Officer of Health, W.H. Duncan, he writes on the 10th of October, 1853. 
I beg to report that for the information of the General Board of Health that 26 new cases of cholera have come to my knowledge. Of these, 18 were German emigrants, chiefly passengers by the Isaac Wright, two Irish emigrants, two inmates of the workhouse, one an old man employed in carrying the patients into the cholera wards, the other a nurse who had been engaged in laying out the corpses of the cholera cases. Twelve deaths had taken place. Three of the German patients were from an emigrant ship, the Emma Field, now lying in the river, with between 400 and 500 passengers on board. It is clear that the majority of the cholera cases have come from outside the Portsland-based community, and those from the inside are, as in the case of the old man and the nurse, people who have had contact with those coming in. But it doesn't end there. Within just four days, we hear that I have to report two new cases of cholera. One, a child which arrived yesterday from Rotterdam via Hull, taken ill and received into the hospital a few hours afterwards. The other, a boy who had been occupied about the shipping and among the German emigrants. A week later, Duncan writes again that 10 new cases of cholera and 13 deaths have occurred in Liverpool. Of the, the fatal cases, four were emigrants by the guiding star, one a servant in a German emigrant's lodging house, and one a nurse in the cholera wards of the workhouse. In other respects, the town remains healthy. The situation persists with similar frequent communications for an entire year, where on the 7th of October 1854, Duncan writes to say, The academic has now assumed so formidable an aspect that the medical officer of health, that's Duncan, feels it is his duty again to court the urgent attention of the Medical Relief Committee, committee to the necessity for adopting arrangements that are adequate to meet the present and impending danger. And the response, although quite long, is quite surprising and worth looking at in full. In a letter addressed by the Medical Relief Committee of the Parish of Liverpool to the General Board of Health, in reply to statements containing Dr Duncan's report, we hear this. The committee cannot but express their great surprise that in making his report to the central authority of his proceedings during the late cholera epidemic, Dr Duncan should have chosen to be altogether silent upon the sanitary part of this case. Possibly the wearisome length of his present communication prohibited its further extension. However this may be, the committee desired to make known their opinion, backed by the opinion of their medical men, that the discreditably filthy state of the principal cholera districts from the commencement of the epidemic until the time when it reached its height was the chief cause of its ravages. It is shown by medical testimony that in those localities cholera struck down its victim almost without warning and with little chance for medical intervention, and that as sanitary operations became efficient, the disease declined. Instead, therefore, of elaborating charges against others concerning the loss of life by cholera, Dr Duncan would have acted more discreetly in looking for its probable cause to the sanitary department for which he is essentially appointed and which he legitimately represents. In essence, it seems that Dr Duncan is being asked to keep his nose out of business which apparently should not concern him. The fact that cholera is now entering Liverpool on a daily basis from the sea and from other sections of the UK on its way to the sea has, it seems, nothing to do with the origin and spread of the disease within the town. If Dr Duncan concentrated on ensuring the local inside port population worked harder to keep the environment in a sanitary state 
there would be no threat from the disease. In essence, it is the fault of the inside community of Liverpool if cholera is rife. The Medical Relief Committee go on to explain that thanks to their energetic interference in this matter, the public have thankfully been the gainers. But to what extent the public have been the gainers is very unclear. Both the case in Tynemouth and the case in Liverpool are linked by the reaction of the local authorities to the medical profession. In Tynemouth, the doctor is heavily criticised for bringing cholera into the area. In Liverpool, the medical officer is criticised for suggesting such importation is putting the local community at risk. Why in Tynemouth, when it is clear that cholera is already at large, does the arrival of the sailor cause such a strong reaction? And in Liverpool, why when the facts presented by Dr Duncan clearly indicate that the problem is not coming from within Liverpool, but from outside, are they so vigorously squashed? It would be difficult to provide a definitive answer to these two questions, but it does certainly pose queries as to the different nature of these ports and the agendas of those who control them. In Tynemouth, a port primarily concerned with the transport of goods, it seems the line between the community of the sea and the land is drawn more firmly and clearly. Although cholera is already in the locality, the idea that the disease could be let in further through a foreign outside body is seen as a threat and danger which must not be permitted. Goods will still arrive and depart, and the financial health of the port will thus remain intact. Thankfully, this also means the health of the port community is thus also subject to protection. Yet in Liverpool, a port which essentially trades in the movement of people, the health of the land communities, regardless of what the local authorities state, seems to come a definite second to the financial health of the port. The lengthy report of the authorities, which refers again and again to proper sanitation being the key to keeping cholera out of, out of the town, seems hard to accept when it is abundantly clear that Liverpool has become an open gateway through which cholera is allowed to move both directly from the sea and from neighbouring ports which rely on its transatlantic passage. In a town dependent on passengers for its financial lifeblood, the land-based communities of the town must, it seems, come second to those of the sea. Thank you. This event was recorded on the 11th of November 2011 as part of the Diversity Week event at the National Archives, Kew.